0: I think I'm having an art attack. What's up everybody and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, extraordinary, ridiculously intellectual, hyper verbal, Lizzie Dastin, art historian, and myself of course, Justin Bua today. Lizzie, we have a very special guest today. We never have guests, by the way. I just want to point that out. We are very selective. Leonardo DiCaprio called me, said, can I be a guest on your show? I said, absolutely not. Uh, We've had many people call and, and we just hang up the phone. Halle Berry was like, hey, can I? No, I don't even want you on. No room for her. No room for anybody. But today we do have a special guest. Lizzie, talk about who we have in studio.
1: Oh, I am so excited about this for professional reasons, for personal reasons. And first of all, I'll frame this with the nature of our episode. We're talking about the relationship between art and addiction, and we are joined by Marnie Zeng ketalaru and she's a licensed therapist with a specialty in addiction and she works at Soul Surgery in Scottsdale, Arizona and Professionally, she is a big inspiration to me, and she's brilliant, and I'm really excited to engage in this conversation. And personally, she's going to be my mother-in-law, and I love her. So (laughs) it's going to be fun for many reasons.
2: So welcome, Marnie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored after that lead-in. Wow.
0: (laughs) So Marnie, have you heard the show? Yes, I have. And you're still on. That's a good sign. I'm still on. (laughs) So uh, Lizzie brought this to my attention and I thought, you know, that's really, that's a very interesting concept. I mean, let's be honest. Artists are and have addictive personalities, all of them, Uh, whether it's Toulouse-Lautrec and his addiction to absinthe. Uh, whether it I mean whether it's Michelangelo and his addiction to creation I mean let's be real like the addiction goes beyond that is that uh, well Lizzie why don't you why don't you why don't you guide us into artists that you wanted to talk about because I know there's definitely some artists that you want to get into
1: yes thank you and this episode could be hours long we've discussed on the show so many artists who experienced addiction, and I think we could see that visually manifest in their work, but I thought this would be a nice opportunity to introduce three artists specifically whose work we haven't yet talked about, and they would be Henri Toulouse-Lautrec, a post-impressionist artist in Paris, and we have Mark Rothko, an American artist, and abstract expressionist working in the 50s and 60s, and then Nan Golden, who's a photographer, also American, and she was really working in the '80s, so it spans some decades. And their work is incredibly rich and toothsome. And I think that with the help of Marnie, we can figure out how addiction is present in their creativity.
0: Yeah, Marnie, help us mind. Help us mind that.
2: So I think that the most important thing um, to note is that on on the average. Addicts are, um, extraordinarily bright. So statistically, um, they have higher, um, higher IQs, but there's also a connection between addiction and creativity. And I, I, there's also, we can also go in another direction and talk about the argument that, um, was their creativity fueled by the pain? Because let's face it, being an addict is, is a painful existence. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: It's a painful way to live. And so, I think that there's just there's so many different avenues that we could go, in regards to this topic.
1: Great, and so maybe we should start with Toulouse Lautrec because he personally experienced a lot of pain, a lot of self-flagellation and doubt, and he had some physical issues, and he was very he was a little person, I think around <laughs> five feet. Yeah, and he suffered from addiction to absinthe, and he also ended up contracting syphilis. And so there was just this miasma of uh, interpersonal and physical things that affected him, but also creates this incredibly dynamic and robust work. I think that he has so many paintings that really illustrate substance and sensation and he's taking the relative passivity of the way that impressionists look at the world and he's imbuing the same content with all of the creativity fueled perhaps from his addiction and his work is a lot more dissonant and a lot seedier
0: yeah he's you know I I believe he was from a very well-to-do family also so he was a bit of an outcast considering that you know whether it seemed like it was his physical circumstances that his parents shunned him and kind of cast him off and he felt home and comfort in the brothels in the underground scenes and perhaps that was also became an addiction but I know that he was because of his physical uh, stature he was he was really an outcast. And I, I think that he found a warm home with the colorful cast of characters from the underworld. Uh, And you see that in his paintings, you know, you see the circus, he was obsessed with the circus and the Moulin Rouge and, you know, the brothels. And, uh, and unfortunately, you could see in in the in the, the photos that we have his physical, you know, his quality started to really change and morph. he had like this Rembrandtian bulbous pustule nose at the end of his life he felt you could see like he was in a lot of pain you look at you look at him and and perhaps you don't see that in his work right you see his striking crazy colors that are all he was always like in like Degas he was always lit from below his characters were lit from below like stage lighting very phantom like uh under lighting And there was something mysterious and theatrical about everything. And perhaps he lived in that world, but I'd love an analysis of him because I'm kind of a, I I'm obsessed with Toulouse. I think he's one of the greatest draftsmen that ever lived. And he painted like he drew, you know what I mean? Like he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a, a renderer per se. You could see the drawing in his painting. You could see the activity in the brushstrokes.
2: So I, before I came on, um, before Lizzie asked me to be a guest, I did some research over the weekend and what I had learned about, is it Toulouse? That's how you pronounce. (laughs) What I had learned about him was that he does, he, he came from an aristocratic family and um, he suffered injuries. He broke both of his femurs within months of each other. And that's what um, accounted for the fact that he never grew. And so that right there in itself, he suffered obviously physical pain, but then there's that emotional pain of just never really be, never really feeling like he belonged, right? He was an outcast. And I, I agree with what you said that he did. He found solace in kind of those dark places, right? The Moulin Rouge and ladies of the night, that's where he kind of found his family. But what I also found very interesting in my research was that he had a very, very, unhealthy codependent relationship with his mother. So when everybody kind of turned their back on him, she never did, but kind of took it even one step further. And I think that maybe she was trying to make up for the things in his life that he felt um, he was robbed of. And I often teach my patients that um, codependence, I believe, is the root of all evils, and I, I tell my patients too, boy, your alcohol and drugs are, are dangerous, but that codependence will kill you
0: long before drugs and alcohol will. Well, tell, tell me why that is. What is that about? Why will that kill you in terms of <clears throat> making you not functioning in the real world, you mean? Like not Correct. Getting-
2: so codependence is, there's, there's many, many different um, uh, definitions of codependence. What I like to, I work from the definition of it's chronic neglect of self. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a codependent relationship, you're um, you're basically neglecting yourself and, and it prevents you from growing. It, de- it prevents you as children, we have deven- developmental stages, mm-hmm. but then as adults, we kind of stop growing and we stop going out into the world and doing the things that we're supposed to be doing for ourselves because we're so hyper-focused on one person or
0: one thing. I have a codependent relationship with Art Attack, which isn't bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. But I think I agree with you, and I think uh, you know something. Do you think that okay? So do you? Do we grow beyond that uh, as adults? Like we have developmental stages as children, but do we grow? Do we have stages as adults? And we does, should, the- right? We should, right?
2: Yeah, I think that we should. And and sometimes, you know, it it's it I the other thing too that that's important to to notate is that yes, we have addiction. When there's drugs and alcohol, then we have a substance that we can identify, right? We're addicted to a substance. With codependence, it's hard to identify what it is that you're addicted to. And, you know, especially like with love addiction, you know, there's it's the the first step of of a very prominent 12-step program is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. The first step of CODA or Codependence Anonymous is we admitted we were powerless over others and trying to control them made our lives unmanageable.
0: Wow. So
2: yeah and it's it's pretty powerful stuff and then when that also too they've done studies where people who are in extremely codependent relationships when they're so-called drug of choice, right, is taken away, they literally will go through withdrawals. Mm -hmm. They'll have a physical response to that relationship no longer being present.
1: And it's so interesting. I love the way you framed addictions to substance as really being rooted in an abandonment of self. And I think that is true for all of these artists. And perhaps if they neglect themselves, they are filling whatever hole that's left with absinthe, heroin, cocaine, all of these substances that the three artists will talk about, uh, what they overindulged in. And I wonder if that shows up visually in the work itself. And I have a very thin understanding of absinthe, but I know it's green and a lot of
0: and it's strong. And it's very strong
1: and a lot of Toulouse lautrecs work just has this green hazy wash. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's because of the neon lights in these underground clubs, or if it could be almost a way to visually manifest the substance that he was consuming.
0: I, I like I almost feel like he was he was so high, he had like these green colored contacts and <laughs> he were like Do les choses vert, I know, you know <laughs> what I mean? like everything's in green, and that's a really interesting thing. So do you think that Okay, so my thing about artists, and and I I feel the same thing, Marnie, about like comedians and and people who are high-level creatives, I feel like a lot of them are really messed up people, you know, Mm -hmm. and I feel like part of the creative outlet is because they're so messed up. Perhaps if Toulouse didn't have the accident, he had two very capable femurs and he grew to be five, you know, eight or whatever. He didn't have a codependent relationship with his mom. He wasn't an outcast probably would never be a good artist, probably never would have had that need to put that into something, but at least there is an outlet to put up all of the chaos, frustration, and tribulation into, right? Don't you think? I mean, part of my journey as an artist uh, with whatever my trauma was, was, you know, the fact that I had one outlet that was, I know, positive and creative. right. You know
2: and I like and I, I like what where you're going with that because there are also um, there are two schools of thoughts when you're dealing with addiction as well one is that addiction is a disease which we have you know plenty of evidence to support but then there's a whole nother group of medical and mental health professionals who believe it's just a lack of coping skills and so I always treat my patients from kind of both schools right that it's both a lack of coping skills as well as the disease model. And in regards to the lap of, lack of coping skills, um, I approach that by having them kind of identify those maladaptive coping skills that they've adopted over the years and replacing them with positive coping skills. And that's kind of, you know, the way that, that we approach that.
1: And that could be art. And actually that's Correct. a lead into the the second artist in our timeline, Mark Rothko, because he not only experienced addictions he he was addicted to alcohol but also he was incredibly depressed and so perhaps one was a way of coping with the other and then art was his creative expression of the totality of that experience and he was a new york painter in the 1950s and he was in the school with jackson pollock and willem de Kooning. so an abstract expressionist And he whittled down the naturalism of narrative into shapes and colors. And he is particularly iconic for his multi-forms, which are these floating rectangles against a different color ground. And he was deeply influenced by Nietzsche and his philosophies and wanted to really cure America of her spiritual ills. And he felt that the way to accomplish that was to take away the narrative because that's automatically going to alienate certain people. And he thought, well, I'm going to express emotions through color. And so that's why his work is totally non-objective. And then as his depression and alcoholism intensified, his color palette really darkened. And his last series of work, it was the Rothko Chapel, it's in Houston. And there are 14 massive paintings with these floating multiforms, but they're all black or gray. And he ended up dying by suicide before the entire project was complete. And I think we can see the colors as almost this dialectic of ecstasy and pain that is true for religious art back from the Renaissance onward, but also of biographical significance to him knowing his biography and so I think that that maybe we can talk about him next and and how perhaps his addiction fueled his creativity but also ended up being uh, overwhelmingly painful
2: yeah well and and I mean I I'm certainly not an expert on art but I would imagine that that level of pain that he was experiencing emotionally and personally it it bleeds through right into his work. And you can see it and almost feel it when you look at his artwork.
0: Is Was the addiction uh, alcohol, Lizzie? Is that it's what alcohol. it was? Hmm.
1: And I think that what you just said, Marnie, is great. And that's exactly what he was hoping to accomplish, that you felt what he was going through just based on color alone. And that is universalizing something that maybe we can't, connect to the specifics of his individual life, but we can feel the sadness. We can feel the depression. We can feel that he is trying to create some kind of control out of the chaos. And his paintings that he produced, especially in the Rothko Chapel, they just are this richly ambiguous visual experience that I've always felt really were just a byproduct of his addiction.
2: Wow. You know, another thing that kind of reminds me of is a lot of times um, I tell my, when, when my patients come into my office, when they first, I work in a a treatment facility and when they first come in, the more broken and devastated they are, the more um, excited I am about the work. And I actually will tell them when they say, you know, I'm just broken. I say, good. Now you're ready to do something different because it, the pain of staying the same has to become greater than the fear of change Mm -hmm. in order to promote movement. And that's what, that's usually when addicts will, that what you've often referred to as heard as a bottom, it's referred to as a bottom, right? It's when that pain of staying the same, they just can't take it one second further and then they'll move in a different direction. And I'm wondering if that also kind of has, you know, shown through in the work, right? They're in so much pain and then all of a sudden, but here's the here's the the problem with that is the addiction is almost fueling the creativity and fueling these magnificent pieces. So what would happen if that were to go away?
0: There wouldn't be Mark Rothko. There you go. <laughs> he would've actually learned how to draw and paint classically and he right. would've never been famous. No, I don't know. I mean, honestly, like <laughs> it's funny because Rothko to me, uh, all my friends that like Rothko they're, you know, I, am not, I'm not a fan of Rothko and Lizzie and I have had these discussions before, but my friends that are fans are like, Oh my God, i love my Rothko. It just brightens up the whole room. <laughs> <laughs> now hearing what Lizzie's saying, I'm just like, man, you need to hear the story. Cause I, <laughs> have, uh, Lizzie will tell you otherwise he is, if they knew that, I bet you they wouldn't even want to hang it in their room. <laughs> in A lot of ways. It sounds so depressing. You know, it sounds like a, uh, Sounds like he took a page out of Pollock's book. I mean, you could feel Pollock's not to, you know, go derail and go into another artist train wreck. Right. Pollock oh, was like, <laughs> like, like, like Rothko. He was a pained individual who was, you could feel the torment and the anxiety and the frustration and, and the, the tribulation, the great suffering in Pollock's life. I really feel like you felt that. And I, I, I now could see what you mean by Rothko. And, and Marnie, that's very true. Like for, for anybody, you don't really know how bad it is until you hit rock bottom. Correct. And then, and then you're willing to make that change. You know, how how many times have people, myself included, gotten to the worst place ever before I went, yeah, I got to change now. Right. You allowed it to go because fear, fear is so great. It's so pervasive. You don't you'd rather just be in that than make a little change to upset. It. It's like, you see, you know, you see it now with, with everything going on during COVID. I mean, it's like, everybody is so locked. They'd rather just do it, have this tiny little bit of freedom, you know, yeah. to be safe, you know? Right. And I feel like it's really the same thing with, with fear and anxiety. That was excellent, Lizzie, by the way. You're getting a, a daughter-in-law who's crazy articulate. It's almost like, <laughs> no, I said, like my asthma. That. I was like, I don't have asthma. She was like,
1: no, <laughs> asthma, what
0: are you talking about? I was like, oh. Well, I do way. have
1: asthma, so that's how I, I know of what I speak. I know, but her, her,
0: her vocabulary is uh, Jeopardy-ish. Okay. Yes,
2: believe me, I know.
0: <laughs> I'm sure.
2: No family <laughs> scrabble games with Lizzie. Yeah,
0: all my friends that meet her are like, Jesus Christ, I don't even understand what she said. Anyway.
1: You were both very kind. I'm interested, and I don't quite know how to articulate this, but there's so many artists like Pollock that you just mentioned. He also was an alcoholic and also died by suicide. It was in a car accident, but many believe that it was purposeful. And I just wonder to what degree is art this panacea of healing and to what degree do is at the bottom, and it seems like some artists are able to identify when he or she needs to seek help, and other times that just becomes un- untenable. And I wonder if there's a way of knowing and of recognizing. Okay, these colors are getting so much darker, and if there's a way to intervene.
0: That's a hard uh, question. <laughs>
2: yeah, honestly, I don't know. All I all I was thinking about is. Um, I think that in, especially with someone who's suffering with, you know, debilitating depression, anxiety, and addiction, art would be more of an escape. You know, it'd be more of a safe place where they can go and, and they can control the world in that, that one little moment.
0: I think, that, I think that's very, that's an astute observation. I think that we, we as artists like to control and is the only thing that we can create the only thing that we can create and control and i think that's that's an important thing you know and some people are so deep into it that they kind of i mean look at picasso like picasso was a really good example of somebody who just was so hyper focused on picasso He was a terrible dad was a terrible husband you know a terrible boyfriend whatever he just was so hyper focused He didn't seem like he suffered from depression necessarily. He might have suffered from narcissism. I
2: was about to say, I think he was very, very, he had a very uh, healthy self image.
0: For sure. But (laughs) it, but it, it it felt like there is kind of an isolating uh, aspect of being an artist that has, that you have to have a unique soul, purpose, vision where you're going to leave shrapnel in the way. I mean, I don't think everybody, but I think I think it is true for, for many artists. It yeah. is,
1: and then I think we can talk finally about Nan Golden's work because she was able to minimize the amount of shrapnel that she left in her wake and actually got herself out of addiction post this project that has risen her to a place of infamy. And she took a series of photographs in 1986 and titled the project, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. And that's actually based on on Bertolt Brecht's Three Penny Opera. And unlike the documentary photographers, she was not photographing a community of which she was not a part. She was an addict and she also identified as bisexual. And so as she's photographing the queer community in Boston, and a community of drug users in Boston, she was among them. She photographed her friends. And I think her initial fuel in pursuing this project was out of personal tragedy. Her sister died by suicide when Golden was 11 years old. And Golden said that she doesn't remember her sister. And in taking photographs of so many people who ended up dying by complications Uh, surrounding their HIV or AIDS or their, their heroin overdoses. So now she has these photographs and she will never forget another person that she loses. And I think that is incredibly profound and poetic. And she has received criticism for glamorizing heroin use. And so I'd love to hear you guys just what your thoughts are. Is there a way to photograph and document without glamorizing? That, I mean, that,
0: I, that, I'll, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave that up to you.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think it's
2: glamorizing. I think that she was doing exactly what you said. I think she was just kind of documenting her journey. And, and I think that she documented both sides of the journey, right? Cause she did end up getting sober. I don't know if she's still sober today, but I know that she did end up getting sober and I, I believe she created, um, a, I can't think of the name of it, but she did create um, an organization that was for addicts in recovery. And so um, I think that she documented both the bad
0: and the good. I never saw her work, honestly, uh, Lizzie before just now. So it seemed like she was documenting herself primarily, right? Lizzie?
1: Yeah, she was. It was a visual diary And I think that that separates her from a Dorothea Lange who engages unwittingly, but nevertheless, she does in this dialectic of power, because here we have the white middle class woman who's holding a camera and taking a photograph of a more vulnerable person who can't speak for herself. And I'm talking about migrant mother, and that is uncomfortable. But Golden, she was in the thick of her own friends and community, and she photographs herself and... She was battered by a boyfriend at the time and then photographed herself, or she composed it, a friend photographed with a black eye and bruises on her face. And so she is implicated in the good and the bad, Marnie, like you say. So I don't feel like it's glamorizing because she's not an outsider.
0: Right, right, yeah. I guess the question is, Marnie, you know, is, is it possible to be a healthy artist. You know? <laughs> no, but you know, and it's true. Like, is it, I think historically, you know, we we are we have the trappings of anxiety and, and pain and frustration and fear and all human stuff, but we we put it into art, whether it's Van Gogh or whether it's uh, you know, I, I see it in, I see it in so many different artists. Uh, is it possible to create as a, an adjusted human being? I guess Norman Rockwell, we could say, had a pretty adjusted life, right? And, but it reflects in his paintings. So you look at a work, like an artist like Francis Bacon, and you go like, oh, man, that guy must have been really messed up, right? <laughs> I mean, like, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it's abstract I... expressionist anxiety, shoot, just to crazy <laughs> man.
2: I think it all depends on what your definition of healthy is. You know, well, I mean, your if,
0: definition of healthy.
2: My definition of healthy is um, where you're um, you're self actualized and you're 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 living your best life and you um, you're comfortable with yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what healthy is. And so there are people who use drugs and alcohol and don't don't have a problem, don't see a problem, and you know are comfortable living that way there are others who get to a point where it's something needs to change and they change it.
0: Do you think it's possible to be a drug addict and to be healthy? You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's a tough question. Well, coming, like you got, you got guys like, um, guys like, it's very rare, but like Keith Richards, who's done.
2: I, I always use that as an example <laughs> Keith
0: Richards, because he's, he's alive and he's done more heroin than Tropicana has made juice and he's still functioning <laughs> and he's a genius and he's, and you know, he's a magillionaire and he's, I know you look at somebody like that. Obviously this is a very rare situation,
2: right? But it's, here's the thing that we don't know about what we right. don't know about Keith Richards are the quality of his relationships. And so what I do know is that whenever addiction is on board, you're, you're pretty much incapable of being vulnerable and that, that, um, puts a block for intimacy, right? And so without that level of intimacy, I, I don't know. I mean, if we measure happiness by someone's wealth and the cars and the houses, okay, great. He's doing really well. But what about the the depth of his relationships? I mean, to me that's that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Also being able to look in the mirror and really like
0: yourself. Be proud yeah, of yourself. I don't know. you just you just ruined it for me. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but I think I think you're right. I think what you said is, are you are you really happy? Do you love yourself with where you're at? Are you happy with where you're at? And what did you say right before that?
2: I don't remember. I said so many wonderful things. No, you did. No,
0: but it was something else know. because I, I really want to hang my hat on
2: self actualized.
0: Self actualized. That's yeah. What I'm about. Yeah, I think yeah. That, are you are you no? You said are you you're living your best life? Yeah. That is that is so important. And I feel like most of us don't, whether it's like I don't like my partner or I don't like my job or this is annoying or I'm broke or yeah, I make money, but I'm stuck. You know, I think we all we all start getting into the the stuckness, especially as we start to, you know, get older, you become used to it. You're like, yeah, but it's not as bad as you you have less of an ability to want to just go off and, and change because it's a lot more of a commitment to go. It's real easy to want to go hike, you know, the Andes when you're, when you're 21 years old, but as you, you know, when you're 51 years old, you're like,
2: eh." (laughs) and you know what the antidote is for all those things you just mentioned is gratitude, right? You know, living a life of gratitude. I, I, that's another thing I assign my patients often is to start a gratitude list, but practice it daily. Because when you're in gratitude, then you're able to acknowledge your blessings and be grateful for them. And it can change your entire perspective because that's another thing. I think that perception is reality.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree with that. Marnie, where do you where, where do you work and, and how do people find you?
2: I work at Soul Surgery. It's in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a, a beautiful, high-end, luxurious um, treatment facility. And we have um, inpatient treatment for residential treatment Uh, at the residential level of care. We also have PHP level of care as well as IOP.
0: Okay. And then you, and it's, is it, do you use, Uh, is it just therapy or are there, or no,
2: no, no. It's a whole program. So we have, um, we're a multidimensional program and we have um, everything from rec therapy to group therapy to individual therapists. We also have, we're fancy. We have acupuncture and massage and biofeedback and equine therapy. It's a holistic approach to treatment.
0: That's good. Do you do psychedelic therapy or no?
2: (laughs) No psychedelic.
1: (laughs) No. (laughs) does. (laughs) No, I just, I wanted to thank you so much for imparting all of your wisdom on this field of visual art. And I learned so much and just to kind of summarize. So you were suggesting that sometimes art can be escapism for addiction. And sometimes art is the manifestation of that addiction. And so it can serve this dual function of, of maybe an integer of healing, but also a way to express the turmoil inside. Is that, is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it can be both a, a, I think it's a healthy coping skill. I really do. Mm -hmm.
0: So I, I, I agree with you. I think that for many people, art is the only coping skill. Yeah. And I think at least thank God we have art. And then on that note, Thank you, morning. Thank you, Lizzie. You guys are the best ever. That was, that was awesome. Thank you
2: so much for having me. I enjoyed it immensely. Peace.